why don't you turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And before we jump in, why don't we pray together? Lord Jesus, we come before you today and we want to be a people that hear from you. We look at the story of Cornelius, the story of Peter. We see the power of the gospel, you drawing hearts to yourself. We see that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. The power of the gospel that was intended for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This story reveals the truth of that verse, but it also shows us the danger of prejudice, the danger of utilizing our beliefs as a means to separate ourselves from the world or to protect ourselves from the world that you came to save. The danger of forgetting the responsibility that we have to be witnesses to all people, to show no favoritism because you are a God who shows no personal favoritism, but you love each person as if they're the only ones to love. And Jesus, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us and direct us into the truth of this passage, that we would be a people whose hearts would be drawn closer to you. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that you might increase that you would prepare all of us together to hear and to respond to what it is the Spirit has to say. May we, like Cornelius' family, recognize your presence here right now and ready our hearts to receive from you. So speak, Lord, for your children are listening. We pray these things in your name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, the story we're going to jump into today is this powerful, uh, this powerful conversion of a Gentile man and his family named Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a man who is a God-fearing man, a man who prays and fasts and gives alms, uh, a man who is seeking after God uh, but cannot find him, but God meets him speaks to him, draws him to himself, and sends Peter to share the gospel of Jesus with him. It's a powerful story because it reveals to us this reality that though the church is exploding, it really hasn't expanded much beyond Jerusalem. We know that due to the persecution that began, it went into Samaria, but this is really where the floodgates break open. And God uses Peter in his reluctance, and honestly, in his prejudice, uh, to break down those boundaries between Jew and Gentile. The power of this story is that Jesus, you remember, commissioned the apostles to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, verse 19. But let me just tell you that they were not eager to do this. Uh, They viewed their beliefs as a means of, of... Uh, connection, belonging. Uh, And the problem is is that the Christian message does bring belonging. It brings connection. It brings community. It brings family. But it is a message that is meant for all people. 
It's not that we get saved and then cloister ourselves into the protection of this room uh, with no responsibility. We must remember that without a preacher, how shall they hear? God has called us to be witnesses to his gospel to the ends of the earth. And I think that this is a powerful picture of where God is breaking down those boundaries. And he uses Peter before Acts shifts to the person of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He uses the apostle to the Jews to cross that boundary. It needed to come from Peter uh, because it was Peter was the one that would be able to communicate to the Jewish Christians and those Jewish Christians who were of the circumcision to know that Jewish law was not necessary to be a follower of Jesus. You didn't need to become a Jew to be a follower of Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and therefore the freedom from it. And so this is a powerful picture because the Holy Spirit had to deal with Peter's prejudice. He had to remove that prejudice. In fact, you remember in Matthew 16, verse 19, uh, Jesus tells Peter, when Peter says, when Jesus says, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my kingdom and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Peter had the keys, but up to this point, the door is a bit locked. And so he needed to learn to utilize those keys to open up the door of salvation for all people. And I think that this is an inspiring message uh, that, that, that shows us that this is not just about Cornelius' conversion, but Peter's change of heart. And how God often has to do that kind of work in us to move us past our prejudices, to recognize that God has a mission to seek and save that which is lost, and he wants to do it through you and I. And it's important that we yield to the free grace that comes to us in Jesus because he has prepared works for us to walk in by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we must be careful to not utilize the keys of the kingdom to lock people out, but to invite people in. So, with that said, why don't we begin? Uh, Because we're going to cover the whole chapter and a little bit of 11. So, verses 1 through 8, we begin with Cornelius' vision. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Isn't that interesting? Once again, this absolute yieldedness, a desire. This is truly a seeking heart. One who is being drawn by the Spirit and prepared for the gospel. And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, And bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So, this is a fascinating passage. And 
one of the dangers when we read through the book of Acts uh, is our attempts to build theological grids where Luke is not really attempting to do that. He's simply stating the facts of what happened. Uh, but when you read a passage like this, it makes it feel like salvation is something that comes by works. That, that this is a good man doing good things. He prays, he fasts, he gives alms. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a man who fears God. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of differing opinions around uh, what does it mean that, that he feared God. Uh, most people believe that he was uh, trying to follow the Jewish faith, but he was not a full proselyte. He was still considered a Gentile, so unclean and still um, not, uh, not fully accepted, although respected, as we'll see later, by all the Jews in his area. Uh, but he is a man of discipline, for sure. In fact, it's, it's interesting. There is every centurion that's mentioned in the New Te- Testament are always these men of incredible integrity uh, and discipline. Uh, that's something worth noting about them. But I want to be, be clear that it is dangerous to say, and I think this is part of the sovereignty of the Spirit, means that he's free to do what he wants. God acknowledges or says, your prayers have been heard heard uh, it's it's become a memorial to me your seeking is sincere and i'm responding to that but we also need to know that the seeking of the thief on the cross was sincere as well and he did nothing i think that's really important for us to understand when it says in galatians three twenty eight that there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female uh, you could go on to say there's neither a disciplined good man or a really bad thief, all are one in Christ that put their faith in him. And so I think it's important that we don't build some kind of false soteriology, some sort of false doctrine around salvation, because Peter's very clear that there is no salvation in any name other than the name of Jesus to be found under heaven, and that our faith in Christ Keep in mind the very words of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9. through nine, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is straightforward doctrine. It's the foundation of our faith. We put our faith in the work of Jesus, the completed work. And so whether you're a person of incredible integrity who does lots of good things, or you're a person who's in prison for doing lots of bad things, we're all in need of salvation, which means we wouldn't need a savior if there wasn't something that we needed to be saved from, which is ourselves. And so I think that, that we need to be very careful when we read this, that the scripture's honest. Luke writes what's true about the, about the man. He was, he was a God-fearing man. He did good things. God took notice of those things. But the salvation that is going to come to Cornelius and his family is based upon them hearing the gospel. And when it comes, they're not doing anything but hearing and believing. I think that that's really important for us to understand. I, I, I want to just share with you, because I think uh, as I kind of wrestled through these, these words about him, uh, I, I do think it's convicting to see a non-believer, one who does not know Jesus, uh, being so disciplined in 
in practices, spiritual disciplines, that we who do know the gospel and have responded to Jesus struggle so fervently with. Uh, and I think it, it reminds me a lot of, of the young rich ruler, because there is much about the young rich ruler, though he walked away sad because he owned much when Jesus basically challenged him where his God was, there was much about the young rich ruler that, was, that we could learn from. Uh, he, was, he was disciplined. He was, he was devout in his, uh, in his following after God. He wanted to, he was asking the right question, where can I find eternal life? He was seeking sincerely, and there was an urgency in his presence. And I think that this, I got convicted when I read through, through these words of Cornelius that he, look, look what it says about him, prayed continually to God, is generous with his possessions, fears God. We just considered last week that strange paradox that creates real church growth, which is a people who, empowered by the Spirit, walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is a man who actually walks in the fear of God, a God that he doesn't even know personally yet, not in the way that God wants him to know, because Jesus says, it is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But this man is seeking and pursuing with more diligence, more fervency than, than most Christians I know, including myself. And I find that convicting. Praying continually. Aren't we called in Scripture to pray without ceasing? Our attempt, now keep in mind, the challenge here is that Cornelius is religious. What is the definition of religion? It's man's attempt to reach God in his own efforts. And Cornelius' efforts can only get him so far. But those efforts, that groping, and I think that, uh, I think that there is actually... Um, a verse that, that gives us even insight into this groping, this seeking after God in Acts chapter 17. Uh, I don't know if you remember this verse, but in 1727, in Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of them. And I think that this is what's happening with Cornelius. There's a groping for God that God responds to. But keep in mind, the impulse to pursue God originates with God, if I could borrow from A.W. Tozer. I like what he says in The Pursuit of God. He says, but the outworking of that impulse is following hard after Him. And all the time we are pursuing Him, we are already in His hand. Thy right hand upholdeth me. In this divine upholding and human following, there is no contradiction. All is of God. For as Von Hugel teaches, God is always previous. I love that. Remember what Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. So there is a divine work happening, and Luke is recording that work. There is already a drawing, uh, and I, I, I love that. God is always previous. So let's look at this next section. Verses 9 through 16, Peter's vision. So Cornelius has a vision. He responds in absolute obedience, immediately sends people to get Peter. He wants to know. God has heard your prayers, has responded to your seeking. Now he's going to reveal the gospel to him through his vessel, Peter. But look at Peter's vision. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were there preparing it, he fell into a trance 
and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. Classic Peter right there. Isn't that funny? Like Peter's uh, comfort level with the Lord crosses into presumption uh, often and, and argues with them. Uh, remember when Jesus said that he had to be crucified and experience, uh, experience the brutality at the, the hands of his own people? And, and Peter's like, no way, no way, Lord, that can't happen to you. And then he, what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Isn't it terrifying that God's servants can sometimes be Satan's tools? I, that freaks me out so bad. And I love what Peter by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is, un, that is common or unclean. I'm not going to break your law, essentially, the law that you fulfilled. Isn't it interesting that Peter's already preached powerful messages around the gospel. He gets it. He's responded to it. He's been, it, this, I think this is one of those moments that shows the possibility of a spirit-filled person for a moment forgetting themselves and entering into the flesh. Remember, we're told that Paul actually stood up to Peter himself for Peter playing the hypocrite. He kept falling back into the trappings of his Judaism uh, and, and legalism, trying to implement, trying to satisfy the fear of man as a snare. And I think that Peter would fall into those trappings at times. He didn't want the appearance of, of walking outside of Jewish tradition. Uh, and it seemed, it seemed dangerous to him. It seemed, it seemed risky. Isn't the law given to create parameters for, by which we can live safely? Why would I do that? I've never eaten, any, eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to do that. Even though he's staying at a man's house who has a profession that's unclean. I mean, he's working toward it, the truth, but he's still reluctant to fully respond to it. And, and I think that this is, this is interesting. He said, Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I, I think that's fascinating that Peter seems to, three seems to be the magic number. Three times he denied the Lord. Uh, three times Jesus, in restoring him, said, do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Of course, Lord, you know that I love you. Care for my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And then Peter's wounded. Yes, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Uh, Peter here, three times needs to be told, rise kill and eat what god has made clean do not call common his prejudices overcame his normal desire to obey and i think that this is really important when we look at this vision peter is is perplexed by what is happening god is getting ready to to absolutely eradicate the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Because you remember, the Jews had treated election like some sort of weird divine favoritism. They had treated election as, as we're in and everyone else is out. But the purpose of God's choosing of Israel originally was that they would be a nation of priests to all the nations. 
but they had become cloistered over time, ingrown, turned in upon themselves. And Jesus comes to fulfill that very call that God had given to Israel. Jesus becomes the true Israel who actually fulfills the law perfectly. He said, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to perfect it, to fulfill it. And so in his perfection of the law and through his sacrifice, the ability for him to become our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, where the message is not just for the Jewish people, but it is through him, the true Israel, that all people are to be reached with this message. This is, these are the prejudices, the boundaries that, that Christ is eradicating from Peter's life so that the keys of the kingdom can open the door wide to the lost. So important for us to understand this. But look what happens. Verses 17 through 23, Peter's commission. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, doesn't explain, Luke doesn't explain what he means by that other than what it says. The Holy Spirit instructed Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. I think it's important just to note, once again, I think a proper, uh, a proper doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so necessary for the church. And this shows us the Spirit is not a force to be wielded but he is a person to be worshipped. He is part of the Godhead and he comes as a helper to actually guide us and direct us toward the truth of who Jesus is. That he is the one who will teach. And I love this because this reveals once again the personality of the Holy Spirit. Forces don't tell us to do anything. Personalities do. <laughs> and the Spirit says to him, Behold, three men looking for you rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them I, I think it's really interesting here it says behold there are men looking for you rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for i have sent them but when peter retells the story to the jewish council about what the holy spirit told him he uses a different word and i think it's really it's really important to note if you look at acts chapter 11 the next chapter uh, which the first half of 11 is Peter just retelling the entire account, which shows in Luke's mind this is a very important story. Uh, this, is, this is an incredibly important story for the, for the development of the church and the expansion of the gospel uh, to move beyond the Jews, beyond the Samaritans, to all people, to the Gentiles. This is really a second Pentecost, if you will. It's the Pentecost for the Gentiles. But I think in Acts chapter 11, verse 12, he says, and the Spirit told me to go with them not without hesitation, but he says, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Isn't that interesting? 
that little nuance changed. And, and I think that it's been stated that, that it can be, uh, that, that the essence the, of the whole thrust of this passage is that God is wiping away the prejudices, wiping away the distinctions, calling us to be a people that see all people as those who are made in the image of God, those whom Jesus died for, that the gospel is meant for everyone. And I think that this is so powerful because Peter still didn't fully understand that, but this is the, this is the breaking point for him. Uh, and it's so, so profound, so beautiful. Look what it says in verses 24 through 33, because now we see Peter and Cornelius meet. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. I, I, I want to just point out in that, that moment, why did Cornelius fall down at Peter's feet and begin to worship him? I mean, we know that the Spirit told Cornelius, this angel told Cornelius to send for Peter and that Peter would basically explain to him what it is that he's seeking. But I believe that there, if I could read between the lines here, there was something about Peter. I mean, people don't just fall down at people's feet and try to worship them, but there is a holiness. There's a light. There's a spirit-filled reality uh, that was evident uh, to, to Cornelius and to his household. Uh, as he meets Peter, there's, he sees there's this overwhelming sense of reverence for Peter because Peter is the fulfillment of the very thing that the angel of the Lord promised him. And though the response was, was inappropriate, I think it shows the heart of how desperately groping this man is for the truth. But I think it also shows that, there was, that Peter... Uh, being one who is walking in the power of the Spirit, that there is something supernaturally natural about him and naturally supernatural. Uh, and as we see uh, what, what comes of this, I love this. He says, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter gets it. The truth of the vision. I do think that it's important that there are two realities here, that the gospel is for all people, but there also is a reality that, that God has... Uh, this is one of those passages... You know when people say, well, why should I, keep, uh, why should I obey that law? Why should, I, why should I follow Jesus' sexual ethic um, if... If we should follow a sexual ethic, why wouldn't, we, why wouldn't we still also not eat shellfish? This is actually a direct passage where God releases that law. I mean, he calls Peter to get up and to kill and to eat. That, that ceremonial law has been eradicated. It is no longer, it is no longer holding. Um, but I think that the more important point of do not call, um, uh, don't, do not call that which is common unclean the more important point is that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That Christ Jesus died for all of them the same. Uh, and I think that this is, this is an important, important reality. But look what, look what goes on to say. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Look how cloistered that is. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms, your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. And I love this, this, this verse right here. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God. To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Once again, I am struck by the sincerity uh, and the insight, actually, of this man who has not yet heard the gospel. What is the thing that he notices? What is the thing that we should be doing every time we come together uh, as a community of faith? What does it say? Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. But I think that too often we are like Jacob. Remember when Jacob receives the vision of the ladder? From heaven, angels ascending and descending. And when he wakes up, he, he, he's overwhelmed with a sense of, of awe and reverence, of fear, actually. And he says, God is in this place and I did not know it. And I think that's one of the great indictments against the church today. Is that we utilize our beliefs in Christ as a means of creating community, but we forget that our belief is in the living Christ who is present and available. And here, Cornelius recognizes the very presence of God. He says, we are here in the presence of God, ready to hear all that you have to say. You come each week, not to hear from me, but do you come as a community of faith, ready to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. Amen. In fact, hopefully praying, Holy Spirit, in spite of Josh, would you speak to me? <laughs> Help me to see through his ramblings that I might actually hear your word for my life. This is what we should do. And there is a power. I, I've had seasons at Door of Hope. There was one season early on specifically where we were growing so fast. And I just became increasingly uncomfortable with the numerical growth because I could sense that people weren't coming with the... Ex I could, you can feel it when people aren't ready to receive the word. You can feel it. It's like, it's like an awkward performance where everyone's just there like, go ahead. We're here to see what all the hype is about. Uh, we heard about this guy that looks like a white Jesus and it seems like a cult to me. So I'm, just gonna, I'm coming here to check it out and observe and there was it, i just remember there was just this this sense of voyeurism that there there was no engagement there was no commitment it was just numbers because it was the new game in town and 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 i remember i was so uncomfortable with it that i sabotaged it because i have the gift of doing that the spiritual gift of of uh numerical uh, uh minuses uh <laughs> I, I just encourage people, I'm like, listen, these are our pillars, this is what we're about. If you're here just to, to watch and engage, we want to just encourage you that this is, this is not the church for you. And I think we lost like two or three hundred people in like one week, and I'm like, I did not expect that to be so effective uh, as an announcement. Uh, but but the, the, the sense was, is that there was a lack of, of the, 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 the discomfort that I was having is that the, that church was becoming merely a show 
where people come and say, entertain me and edify me without pain. <laughs> Don't challenge me to live differently. Uh, and give me some encouragement that I can walk away with. No, no, what Cornelius is doing in this passage is what you and I should be doing every day, recognizing that we are in the presence of God, ready to hear from him and his spirit. Jesus says, it's good that I go to the Father because when I go, I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will guide you into all truth and bring to remembrance all things that I have said to you. Do you live in the presence of Christ? Do you live in his presence? That powerful verse from Acts chapter 17, when Paul is speaking, giving the sermon of Mars Hill, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. In Him we move and breathe and have our being. God is present. I love that. It's a remarkable acknowledgement that they were in God's presence, that the Apostle Peter was to be the bearer of God's Word to them, and they were all ready and open to listen to it. Now look at Peter's sermon, verses 34 through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. This is really important um, that we grab a hold of this because the next verse uh, can lead to some really bad theology if we're not careful. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That does not mean that those who do good works are saved. That there's another way outside of Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is not a passage of works-based salvation with, with no God to name. <laughs> this is a passage where I believe that the context in Acts chapter 10 and, to, and in its contrast with the, with the statement, God shows no favoritism or no partiality, that the emphasis is that Cornelius, as a Gentile, was acceptable so that he need not become a Jew. He's accepted. I accept you as you are. What is the, what's the essence of the gospel? Come as you are. Place your faith in me. I also think it's important if you look at, at 11.14 of Acts when Peter is reciting uh, to the Jewish council what happened in Cornelius' home. He said, as he was talking to them about what he actually preached to them, he says, he will declare to you a message by which you will... As he was relaying to them what Cornelius spoke. He said, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. So they were not saved. Salvation had not yet come. It had not yet fallen. They were not yet believers in Jesus, as far as we can tell from this passage. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus. So here Peter is is declaring to them, you've heard about Jesus. I'm here to tell you that he was everything that he declared to be. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses, I love this, of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen. Notice that. Here, here again, we see the logic of election. Chosen by God as witnesses. I chose you. You did not choose me. This is, this is that wonderful statement of A.W. Tozer, God is always previous. <laughs> but the choosing is for the purpose of utilization. I choose you that through you I can save all. That is the desire. God desires that all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That doesn't mean they all will, but he has chosen you and I. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world that through us he might bring forth the gospel. This is the continued plan of Christ bringing his kingdom to the earth, that this is what it means to receive the keys to the kingdom as we are proclaiming Jesus is the one who brings liberation to those who are enslaved. I love this. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So here he is proclaiming the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him believes in Jesus. Notice it doesn't say Everyone who prays fervently and gives alms and fasts and fears the unknown God. No, it says everyone who believes in Him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through His name. I love this. The great notes are Jesus as the personal Redeemer the witnessing church, the call to be witnesses to His salvation and the universal invitation, all who believe. I love that. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Notice that it does not say that all religions are alike in God's sight, but all nations are alike in verses 34 and 35. This is the first first note of the gospel. And I love what happens in verses 44 through 48. The gospel is preached and notice that as he declares, we bear witness everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, look at it, it's like Pentecost again, but it's like Pentecost for the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And I believe this is one of those areas where there have been doctrines, uh, false doctrines once again created out of a book that is meant to declare to us what actually happened in the early church, that when the Holy Spirit fills us, that the, out, that the, that the, the only evidence that you're truly Spirit-filled is that you speak in tongues. That is not the point of this text. What God is doing through Cornelius and his family is that he is giving to Peter the sign that the gospel truly has taken effect and root in this, that the distinctions, the thrust of the whole, the context of the whole chapter is that there should be no prejudice, that the gospel is for everyone. And the evidence of that gospel reaching these people, because people can say all the time, 
I've received Jesus into my heart, and there's no evidence of that salvation taking root in their lives, and so we don't know. This is a point where Peter and the Jewish followers of Jesus that were there needed to know because they were able to bring back with absolute evidence that God shows no personal favoritism. He is not... He has not favored the Jews over the Gentiles, but here the Spirit has fallen on them, empowered them, and gifted them just the same as us. No distinction. And look what happens. And the believers from whom among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. Notice, it's, it's, this becomes a witness to the Jewish believers. As in the day of Pentecost, the tongues and the praising of God became a witness to those, to those who were in Jerusalem to worship. Now, the Gentiles are being a witness to, back to the believers to show them what the purpose of the gospel is really about. God really did die for the world. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to remain for some days. What do they want? They want to understand this gospel. Isn't it fascinating that when the gospel is preached and Jesus is proclaimed, every rock is not turned over. You don't, you don't understand everything and then put your faith in Jesus. The Spirit draws the heart to reveal the truth of who Jesus is. And, and I, if you're like me, we often respond to it before we understand much of anything other than I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I trust that Jesus is everything that He said He is. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead shall be saved. There is no front-loading of the Gospel. It was not the works of Cornelius that saved Him. It was simple, childlike faith in the person of Jesus. And Peter stays, stays for several days because we don't just... We don't just start there and then live to our own devices, but we need further instruction. We need to grow together as a community. We need community. But the community is there to reinforce the call to be witnesses to all people, not for the point of cloistering ourselves and protecting ourselves from that scary pagan world out there, that devastatingly progressive city that we live in called Portland, where all beliefs are being eradicated to the point where we see with increasing numbers people living in absolute despair Right now, more than ever, does this city need to see the power of the gospel being played out in our lives as a community of faith. We have been given the Holy Spirit, and we are called to be witnesses to Jesus, and there should be no distinction. The gospel isn't for some and not for others. It is for all people. It is not our responsibility to de define how they respond to that gospel. It is simply our responsibility to be witnesses to all. And then I love this. They were commanded to be baptized. We're getting ready to have baptisms, guys. My granny, who passed away, uh, being the good Lutheran she is, she's like, this is it. This is the passage that, where you get infant baptism. I'm like, it doesn't say that, granny. She's like, it says his whole family was baptized. There had to have been babies there. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like that's a... <laughs> That's an interesting exegesis, but I, I think that, uh, talk about reading, I love to read between the lines when I read the text and let the story open up to me, but that is really letting it open up. This is, those who believed, put their faith in Christ, were baptized. And this is what people ask me all the time, if I was baptized as an infant, should I be 
baptized again. And I, I never like to define that uh, for a person. I, I, I read, I've read many theologians that I respect greatly that do not hold to infant baptism, but feel that baptism, whenever it was done, that, that even if it's done inappropriately, is, is adequate. But I would say if you're uncomfortable with that baptism as an infant, and you want, that, you want that experience, let each person be convinced in their own mind. And so I, so I, don't, I don't tell you that you have to do that, uh, but I would invite you, if that's something that you want to participate in, man, you've, if you put your faith in Christ, and I love this, in the early church, this is what happened. People got saved, and the altar call was they got baptized. If we had, if we had the ability to do that every week, I would do it. Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a powerful testimony to, uh, to the work of the Spirit. And so I just want to read one final verse, and we will, we will close it up. Uh, and that is at the end of, 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 in the middle of chapter 11, when Peter goes back to Jerusalem after several days, and they gather together the group of, they gather together the Jewish believers, and those that were called of the party of the circumcised were, were upset that Peter had preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Those prejudices were alive and well in Jerusalem. And actually, what you will see even through the letters of Paul in the New Testament, this consistently is a big problem uh, within the church of this, what, what we have as, as Judaizers coming in among the Christians and trying to get them to leave their understanding of grace and to go back to sort of a works-based, merit-based system. And this is why Paul says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you now trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? Uh, and as Peter declares to them uh, what happened, there's a point where they become convinced and, and they believe him. And it says this in, 11, in chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You guys, that is a really, it's really good news because I don't know if you know this, but odds are most of you are, are Gentiles in this room. Uh, so just want you to know that this is really good news for us. That God's salvation, that Jesus' work, it's not universal salvation. All people will be saved, but it is universal in its reach. Christ died for everyone, past, present, and future. This is the gospel. This is the good news. May we not be prejudiced. May we be available, ready, willing to be witnesses to the lost around us. There are lots of people all around us that desperately need to hear about the grace of Jesus Christ. He loves us. His grace is free. His grace is free. The question is, is will you receive it? You can't earn your way to heaven but you can't accept the one who did the work on your behalf. And you know what? It's the simplest step, but it's also the most violating because it does violence to the soul because we want to believe there's something we can do to help God in our salvation process. We want to cling to the parts of Cornelius' story that says, but look at all the things that he did. That's why God saved him. That's not why God saved him. Luke is just stating what was true about Cornelius, and it doesn't matter if you're the best person in the world. It's not enough to save you. Paul said, if I could be saved by the law, I, would, I probably got closer than anyone. Martin Luther is another example of a man who lived stringently um, according to works, disciplined 
uh, in spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting, and yet he felt the more he tried to earn God's favor by his works, the more damned he felt. We need to understand that the gospel comes freely. Jesus' work is the only work that is adequate and sufficient for us. The question is, is will we receive that one-way love that comes to us? For we love him only because he first loved us. May we remember that God's work is always previous. It's his work from start to, start to finish. The question is, is, will we surrender to him and receive it? Should we pray?